So Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, uh, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to him the, the, he gave the name, maybe Boanerges, possibly, um, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teacher of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. That's just another word for Satan or the devil. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Over, over the past few weeks, um, I've been uh, watching a TV series called The Bear. I don't know how many of you have watched it. Um, it it's got quite a bit of a, a momentum this year. It won quite a few awards. And, and the story of The Bear is it covers this story of a, um, a chef who worked in one of the best restaurants in America. He was awarded Chef of the Year or something by some prestigious award. And, and what happens is his brother dies and leaves him this family restaurant. And now restaurant is a strong word for what it is. It's in essence like a glorified sandwich bar. Um, and he turns up and he's, de he's determined to make a go of it, to try and make this work. But the problem is that Everyone there is like entirely incompetent. And alongside that, he has all the family dynamics to work out of no one willing to listen to him or to do anything he says or to pay any attention, despite the fact he's this world-renowned chef. And, and so, so the, show's, the show's pretty good. I've, I've been enjoying it. It is somewhat tense. Like, kitchen dramas always seem to be a little bit tense. Um, and there's, there's a fair bit of tension that goes on with it. But in one of the episodes I was watching this week, um, the, the main character, Bear, um, he's, he's at a party, and his brother-in-law's there. His brother-in-law is called Pete. Now, Pete is, unlike almost anyone else in the show, 
Pete is like a nice guy. Like he's encouraging, he's friendly, he's always looking to see the upside, he's always trying to say how great he thinks people are going and how well people have borne up. And you might think that this would make everybody like Pete. That is not the story. <laughs> the story is that everything Pete does irritates them all immensely. Like anytime he tries to encourage them, they're just like rolling their eyes at him. And they're saying to each other, oh, did you hear he said that again? There's one bit in this episode, um, which is probably my favorite bit of the episode, where Pete falls asleep and they all just stand around him looking at him going, how annoying is he when he's asleep? Like literally, it's, it's, that, it's that situation where everything he does, whether it's sleeping, speaking, whatever he does, just annoys people and irritates them. And when you're watching this, you're like, this is grossly unfair. Like, he's just a nice guy surrounded by these socially incompetent, driven people, um, and yet none of them can stand him. But the reason why it works is because most of us have someone a bit like that in our lives. Like, if you think about it, you probably have someone in your life who just everything they do just slightly irritates you. You know, as soon as they start speaking, you just get a bit annoyed by it. And whatever it is they say, you're just looking for an excuse to criticize it. Now, maybe, maybe some of you don't. I don't want to cast you all with, a skit with this. But, but I'm aware that it exists. There's, there's this, sometimes there's just this irrational thing where when someone starts speaking, all we're doing is looking for a reason to disagree with them. As soon as they start speaking, we're looking at an, for an excuse to be offended, to be upset to ignore them, that person who you love to disagree with, who no matter what they say, you're just irritated by. I'm aware, for some of you, I might be that person, which does make this next like 25 minutes a little like tricky. Like I might be that person where when they start speaking, you're just desperate to find a reason not to listen to me. Now, now the reason I started with that, because over the next couple of weeks, so this week and next week, we're going to be looking at how people respond to the person of Jesus. That's what we're going to look at. So as we read through that, what you'll see is there were a whole load of different people in a whole load of different situations who all responded differently to the person of Jesus. But the question I want us to wrestle with, more specifically, the question I want you to wrestle with as you're sat here this afternoon is how do you respond to the person of Jesus? Because that, that's really the thing that matters. Like, like, not how does the person sat next to you respond to the person of Jesus, although we do want other people to respond well to Jesus, but primarily, how do you? What reaction do you have when you hear Jesus speaking into your life? What reaction do you have when somebody comes to you and starts speaking about Jesus? What reaction do you have when someone like me stands up here and says, let me tell you about Jesus? Like, what goes on in your head? Maybe as soon as you hear the name Jesus, you just like zone out. You're like, okay, this is my this is my moment where I stop listening for a little while and think about all the other things I've got in my life. Maybe maybe that's how you respond. Or, or maybe maybe as soon as someone starts talking about Jesus, you listen, you listen, you'll take it in. But what you're looking for is, oh, I wonder if there's something I can disagree with there. I wonder if he's going to misspeak. I wonder if they're going to say something that I don't agree with, that I can pounce on. I wonder if they're going to say something that doesn't make sense, that I can crucify them for. Maybe it's that. Maybe, maybe it's not that. Maybe you are um, open to hearing what Jesus says. Maybe you're willing to think about what you might need to do in response to that. I don't, I don't know. But the question I want you to ask is, how do you respond? Like, What's going on right now in your head as we're preparing ourselves to look at the person of Jesus and see how people respond to it? 
Because it strikes me that lots of people respond to Jesus a little bit like how everyone responds to Pete and the bear. With a sort of irrational hostility. You know, they just, they just don't like him. They don't like what he's got to say. And it's difficult to know why, because so much of what he says makes so much sense. And so much of what he says seems so kind and gracious and loving. But just something about it just annoys people. So, so many people find themselves in this place where they're just unwilling to listen to Jesus. It doesn't matter what he was saying. It doesn't matter uh, whether it's good or bad, whether it's perceptive or not. They're just unwilling to even hear it, annoyed by everything he says. Even the mention of him annoys you. When people talk about Jesus, you're looking for an excuse to be irritated or offended. And the question that I have in that is why? Why why do so many people have this irrational hostility to Jesus, unwilling even to consider whether he's got anything to say in their life? Well, I think the Bible would say it's because every single human being is to some degree hostile to God. Now, that's in essence what sin is, right? So sin, the way the Bible talks about it, it is, is the way that every human being attempts to get rid of God, to ignore him, to do things our own way, to have nothing to do with him. I mean, that's, that's kind of the origin of sin in that, in that very first story in Genesis. It's them saying, God, if you wouldn't mind going away so that we can do things our own way, that would be better. You see, we want rid of God. We don't want to listen to him. And so when God turns up in the person of Jesus and starts saying, hey, I want to know you. I want to be close to you. More than that, I don't just want to know you and be close to you. I love you. More than that, I want to adopt you into my family and start calling you back to him. More than that, he says, I want to, I want to forgive you. I want to transform you so you start living my way. When that happens, the sin in each of us hates that. Because that's not what we want. We want rid of God. We don't want a God who comes close. We don't want a God who loves us. We don't want a God who speaks to us. We don't want a God who does, has any impact on our life. We want rid of him. It's the exact opposite of what the sin in us wants. And so in each one of us, this is not a, oh, some people out there are rationally hostile towards Jesus. In each one of us, there is an irrational hostility towards Jesus and what he's calling us to do. That's what sin is. And every one of us, for as long as we continue to encounter sin in our life, to wrestle with sin in our life, has, to a degree, an irrational hostility towards Jesus. And that is what we see here embodied in these teachers of the law. Just look with me at verse 22. I'm sorry, we're going to be all over the place. We're basically going to work backwards. Imagine you're in like a Sam Mendes movie or something, um, or Christopher Nolan or whatever. Like, we're going to basically be working backwards. So let's, let's go at 22. This is the teachers of the law. They come down from Jerusalem. What do they say? They say, he's possessed by the devil. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Now that is an irrational objection to Jesus, if ever there was one. It makes no sense. Why would Satan drive out demons who are working towards the same end? How could you suggest that the root of all this good that Jesus is doing, all this healing and teaching, that the root of that is evil? It makes no sense. Why would evil do those good things? It's in essence saying to Jesus, you see all this good you're doing, well, you're really only doing it because of how evil you are. Like, are you sure? It doesn't make a lot of sense. And that's why Jesus says, that doesn't make a lot of sense. He says, well, a house divided against itself can't work. 
why would Satan oppose what he's doing? He's saying it doesn't make any sense. It is irrational hostility towards Jesus, which we see again and again in people in the Gospels. We see again and again in people we encounter in our lives. And if we're honest, we see again and again in our own hearts. It's the irrational hostility which says, don't talk to me about Jesus. I don't want to hear about him unwilling even to consider what he says. It's the irrational hostility which says that Jesus is evil and that the faith he established is like a virus. It's the irrational hostility which mocks and ridicules Jesus without really knowing anything about him. Maybe, for some of us, just to bring it closer to home, it's the irrational hostility which rears its head when we're feeling down and someone tries to comfort us with the gospel, but we just don't want to hear that comfort. We just get irritated by them trying. Maybe it's that irrational hostility which refuses to listen when someone reminds us of the life Jesus calls us to live when we're in danger of going a different way. We just need to be aware of this. Sometimes the very mention of Jesus... Sometimes thinking about him, talking about him, hearing him speak into our lives, just that will be enough to get our antibodies up sometimes. And if you accept that, if you don't fight against that, if you just accept that sometimes that's the way it's going to be, you will end up like the teachers of the law, irrationally hostile and unable to hear the good news that Jesus has for you. You have to resist that kind of reaction. You've got to go, this makes no sense. This is irrational. This is unnecessarily hostile. This is just putting a barrier between me and actually hearing the good news that Jesus has for me. You've got to resist that. You've got to force yourself to listen. Force yourself to believe the truths that Jesus is teaching you. Force yourself to follow him. If you're ever going to start relating to Jesus, you can't just allow that irrational sin in your life to make you hostile towards the person of Jesus. So that's the first response we see to Jesus. And it's a response that all of us will be able to relate to at some level. But there is another group which doesn't seem to think too highly of Jesus. And this group is a little bit more surprising, right? Because we're used to the Pharisees. If you've, been, if you've read through Mark at all, if you've ever come across uh, like Christian teaching before, you're used to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Yeah, they're, they're hostile to Jesus, constantly having a go at him. Eventually, they're going to kill him. Like You're used to that, but we're not used to what we see in verse 21, which is his family turn up, and they see all the crowds and the busyness and presumably this mix of adulation and hostility, and they say... He's out of his mind. So you've got the Pharisees and teachers of the law on one hand saying he's basically evil. And then you've got his family who like chip in and they're like, oh, oh, maybe he's not evil. He's just crazy. Now, many of us have experienced difficulties in our family relationships. We know what it is to feel let down by a parent or abandoned by a child. M many of us know what it is to feel like siblings don't care about us or, or like we'd be better off having nothing to do with that brother or sister or parent or child. And, and because of that, we can imagine what it would have felt like for Jesus to hear these words from his family. 
It's one thing to have people who've never liked you, who've always been hostile towards you, telling everyone that you're evil. Like, not pleasant, but that's one thing. It's quite a different thing to have your family turn up and say, oh, no, he's not evil, he's just crazy. (laughs) At, At this point in the story, his family seem to be as blind to who Jesus is and what he's doing as the Pharisees and teachers of the law are. And, and, and you've got to ask the question, haven't you? How could that be? How could it be that his family don't get it? If Jesus was this guy and he'd come to do this great work, how could his family just think he's crazy? They'd presumably spent so much time with him. They'd seen him grow up. They'd, they'd presumably heard him teach, heard him talk about these things many, many times, maybe even over the dinner table, talking about some of the stuff that he's going to go on to talk about in his ministry. How can they have heard all this stuff seen so much and yet still be so blind to who he was and what he was doing. Uh, Here's the warning for you. And this is a a warning that all of us need to take seriously. It's that proximity to Jesus is not the same as actually knowing him. It's possible to spend a whole lot of time around Jesus without actually knowing him, without actually following him, without actually enjoying a friendship with him. Maybe maybe that's you, like here right now. Maybe you've been around Christian things for a long time. Maybe you've been coming along on a Sunday here somewhere else for for many years now. Uh, Maybe more than that. Maybe you're like, no, I'm keen. I'm a part of a life group and I go along to that. Maybe you've even met up with some people, looked at some gospels with them, looked at the Bible, talked about your life with them, prayed with them. Now, all of that is good stuff, and I love it when I hear stories of people doing that stuff within Grace Church, because we believe God speaks powerfully through his word. Any chance that people are exposed to it is great. It's all good stuff, but it's not the same as actually knowing Jesus. Just, just to make it like practical, you could, like, if it wasn't Jesus, if it was just someone else, you could follow someone around. You could know a lot of information about someone, You could spend a lot of your time with them without actually being friends with them. And sometimes I think we confuse the two things. We consume proximity with Jesus with friendship with Jesus. But Jesus is clear. You come to know him by faith. That's how you move from somebody who's close to Jesus to someone who's a friend of Jesus. Someone who's near to Jesus, but someone who actually knows him and belongs to him. We know him in that friendship sense by believing in him, by finding the forgiveness he offers and then following him. We become friends with him by understanding what he's about and then by living lives where we talk to him, listen to him, obey him, enjoy him, are increasingly transformed by him. So just right now, be honest with yourself. Which of those two groups describes you? Have you merely spent a lot of time in and around Christian-type things without ever really knowing him, ever really knowing Jesus, ever really loving Jesus, ever understanding what he's about, ever actually following him? Or do you actually know him? Are you actually friends with him? Do you actually love him, follow him, obey him? Have you actually asked him for and received the forgiveness that he died to bring you? Have you actually got on board with what he's doing? And have you committed yourself to following him? Because externally, those two things can look the same. I can't necessarily tell which one of those two groups you are. You have to look at yourself to answer that. 
Are you someone who hangs around Jesus, thinking that just being near him is enough? Are you, or are you somebody who knows him, loves him, follows him, is one of his friends? So that's, that's the first two groups. You've got the teachers of the law who, who are irrationally hostile to him. You've got his family who have spent a lot of time with him but don't actually know him. But there's two other groups shown here. The next is the crowds. We see them throughout this passage. Perhaps most clearly they're described in verses 7 to 10. This is one of those like, actually relatively detailed descriptions of who the crowd are. It's a whole host of people who've come from all these different places to see Jesus. They've heard all that he's doing. They've seen the healing he does. And so they clam around him, hoping to see and hear and experience some of what he's been saying and doing. Now, what's interesting about the crowds in Jesus' life is that the crowds come and go, right? Sometimes they're flocking to him. You know, there's so many of them that he's got to go out on a boat just to get a bit of space. There's so many of them that they can't fit in the room. Sometimes they're clamoring to get round him. But sometimes they're leaving him. Sometimes they're shouting, hallelujah. Sometimes they're shouting, crucify him. If you look through the gospel, the crowd are a fickle bunch. But here, in this passage, they're interested and in, intrigued by Jesus. And again, maybe this is you today. I don't know. Maybe you've heard that and you've gone, I'm not a teacher of the law. I'm not even a family. But maybe you're a crowd. Maybe you're a member of the crowds. You're interested in Jesus. You're drawn to him. Curious about who he is, what he can do. You want to know if Jesus is all that people say he is. If he can actually make a difference in your life. If he could make your life better. If that's where you are, I just want to say you're very welcome here. Like we love to have people who are intrigued in Jesus, interested in him, exploring what he's about. And we believe as a church that if you truly look into the person of Jesus, you will find somebody who can bring you forgiveness and a relationship with the God who made you, who can transform your life. We believe it will be good news for you. But, but you also need to be aware that it won't be plain sailing. There will be sorrows along that path. There will be disappointments and hardships. Because if you don't know that, then your interest in Jesus will come and go, just like it did for these crowds. When you seem like you're getting what you want out of him, you'll be flocking to him. When life gets hard and opposition rears its head, you're trying your hardest to distance yourself from him. Uh, and so when you're faced with the person of Jesus, you're going to have to decide what you do with that. Are you going to be like these teachers of the law? Are you just going to allow an irrational hostility to prevent you from hearing what he has to say? Are you going to be like his family? You'll happily spend loads of time with him, but you're not really going to see who he is. You're not really going to get to know him, to love him, to follow him. Or will you be like these crowds so often are? Here for the good times, nowhere when times get hard. Or... Category four, are you going to be like the people Jesus calls you to be? We see them described in verse 13 down to 19, these disciples. Because here in the middle of this section, we shouldn't miss that. In the middle of this section, Jesus takes these 12 aside and he calls on them to share in his ministry. What are they going to do? They're going to spend time with Jesus. They're going to learn from him. They're going to preach. They're going to demonstrate Jesus' power by driving out demons. 
Now, now the call that these 12 get is different to the call that you and I get. It's not identical. You know, we're not going to write scripture. They are. So, so it's different, but we should know that at the heart of it, we're called to these same things. Jesus is going to call all his followers to, do, to get involved with his work. He's going to call on us to abandon our hostility, to not settle for mere knowledge, to not be merely observers or out for what we can get, but to get involved with the work he's doing. Just like these first apostles, Jesus calls on us to preach his gospel. Now, preach the gospel is just such like a religious phrase, isn't it? Like, oh, let's go and preach the gospel. Like, but it's not, it's not that complicated. Preach just means proclaim, declare. The gospel just means good news. It basically means we're, we're called to tell people the good news of what Jesus has done. That's what preaching the gospel does. That's what we're called to do, to tell people the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done, to tell people about a God who came to earth in the person of Jesus, how he called on people to turn away from their sin and repent, and how ultimately he died so each one of us could be forgiven. That's what he calls these 12 to do. That's what he calls us to get involved with doing. That's the response Jesus wants from us. He doesn't want our hostility. He doesn't want us to discount him as mad or merely to be observers. He wants us to be friends who get involved in the work he's doing. The work of calling people to follow Jesus for themselves. That's, that's why we planted Grace Church, right? We've said it over and over again. If you've been around here any time, you've heard us say, Grace Church exists to share the good news of Jesus. That's why we exist. That's what we're here to do. Because Jesus calls us to tell people the good news about what he's doing. That's what we want to do. And we're inviting other people to get involved in doing that same thing with us. That's our invitation to you. Know Jesus, find the forgiveness he offers, and then get involved in that work of telling people about what he's done. That's what we want for you as a church. I don't want you merely to be here. I don't want you just to fill a seat. I don't want you just to be an observer or an admirer. I don't want you to go away and say, oh, everyone seems very friendly. I want you to be a disciple. That's what Jesus calls us to someone who listens to Jesus and learns from him, someone who follows his teaching and becomes the kind of person he calls on us to be, someone who confesses our sin daily and finds the forgiveness he offers. That's what we're looking for. People who are committed to loving God and loving other people. People who experience the deep joy of sins forgiven and friendship with Jesus and want to share that with others. If you want really, if you really want to respond to Jesus rightly, if you're sat here today thinking, I don't want to discount Jesus, I don't want to be irrationally hostile to him, I want to respond to him rightly. If you want to respond to him rightly, you need to beware of Christianity, which requires nothing of you. And you need to hear Jesus' call to follow him and get involved in what he's doing. If you're, if you're part of Grace Church here today, so if you're someone who say, yeah, I'm a part of Grace Church I'm a part of this community that's committed to sharing the good news of Jesus. I just want you now, just as we finish, I just want you to think, like, what might that look like for you? Like, what would it look like for you to get involved in the work that Jesus is calling his disciples to do? M- maybe, maybe this afternoon Jesus is calling you to get alongside someone in your life group. Maybe, maybe right now he's bringing someone to your mind and he's just saying, hey, there's that person in the life group and you could commit to praying for them. You could commit to meeting up and reading the Bible with them. 
That's the, that's the work I'm calling you to do, to get alongside that person and to share the good news of Jesus with them. Maybe, maybe this afternoon Jesus is just nudging you and he's saying, hey, I want you to get involved in the work that I'm doing in caring for the poor in our town. Maybe he's just nudging you to become a cat befriender or to volunteer at the food bank or I, I don't know what it looks like, but just something saying, hey, I, I love Harleypool and I want to bless the poor and I've always been committed to caring for the poor and I just want you to get involved in that work. Maybe that's what he's calling you to this afternoon. Maybe Jesus is calling you to get on with his work of telling people the good news of who he is and what he's done. Maybe right now he's bringing someone to your mind who you could start a conversation with about what you believe, who you could invite to the discussion group tomorrow, who you could invite into a life group or a Sunday gathering. I don't know, maybe there's someone that God's just saying, hey, this is the person I'm looking for you to share the good news of who I am with. Maybe Jesus is this afternoon calling on you to use some of the gifts he's given you to build up the church. Maybe, maybe that's practical gifts you could use to help out. Maybe it's a gift of hospitality that you could use to make people feel welcome. Maybe right now Jesus is just saying to you, hey, I've given you this gift and you could use that. You could use that to bless the church that I've put you in, to bless the town that I've placed you in to give you opportunities to share the good news of who I am. As a church, we almost never talk about money. So let me just correct that right now. Maybe God's calling you to use the finances he's given you to help share the good news of Jesus. Maybe that's through giving to Grace Church. Maybe it's through giving to some other Christian, Christian organization. I've always said we started Grace Church with no people and no money. We don't, we don't need your money, but we want you to use it wisely and we want you to use it for God's glory. And maybe this afternoon God's just saying, hey, I gave you that money. How are you using that to do the work that I'm calling you to do? Of course, it might be none of those things. It might be a mix of all of them. I, I don't know. But here's the amazing truth we see here. God wants people like us to be involved in his great work of bringing people into his kingdom. He doesn't want to do it by himself. He could, but that's not the way he's chosen to work. He doesn't want us to simply to sit back and watch him make it happen, but rather he wants to use us as part of his great work of establishing his kingdom. And it's in doing that that we find meaning, the purpose, the joy which as I look around the world, it seems like so many people are missing and so many people are desperately trying to find. The danger with any of this is that we hear it. We never actually wrestle with what am I personally doing with the person of Jesus. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a, a, a binary choice right now because we're going to go into a time of communion. And communion forces us to actually think about how do I respond to the person of Jesus? Because communion is the moment where we say, I am trusting in the death of Jesus on my behalf. 
and I'm committed to following him and declaring that until he returns. That's what communion is. It's the moment where we remember what Jesus did and we proclaim what he's done to each other. And so if that is you, if you are someone here today who is saying, that's me. I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that forgiveness is mine through him. And I want to declare that until he returns. Then come up here, take a piece of bread. It's gluten-free. Take some grape juice. It's not got any alcohol in it. Um, Take the bread and the wine. Remember Jesus' death on your behalf. And commit to declaring that until he returns. But if that's not you, then own that. Hey, that's not me. That's not what I believe. That's not what my life's about. That's not what I'm doing. Just stay in your seat. You can think through. You can think through all the objections you have to Christianity. You can think through all the questions you'd like to ask. You can think about what the next step looks like for you. Whatever it is, there's no embarrassment. Just stay seated. Uh, think about this during this time. So, so this is your opportunity. Who are you? How are you responding to the person of Jesus? So I'm going to give us a, a time of uh, quiet to reflect on those things. Uh, And then when you're ready, come to the front, uh, grab some grape juice, grab some uh, bread, uh, if that's where you are. uh, And then we're going to finish by singing. So uh, take these minutes and reflect on who Jesus is and what he's done for us and what it looks like for you to respond to him well.